Welcome to the podcast. We're street smart, business smart, all kinds of smart people share their insights into the world of marketing, career journeys, and personal growth. So sit back and prepare to get enlightened with your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Today, I want to switch things up a bit and talk about a very important topic, mental wellness. It's more than a hot topic. It's more than a buzzword. It's a reality, and we all need to do a much better job in looking out for ourselves, and more importantly, looking out for each other and especially in the workplace, which we're going to dig into. So I've known my guest today, Eric Hewson, an expert in this space for probably 25 years as we grew up in the same neighborhood in Long Island. We were never super close, but we always respected and admired each other. In the last few years, we connected deeper professionally, and the synergy has been fantastic. Eric is an 18-year professional sports executive veteran who got his start in the NBA League office, and we're going to touch on the Raptors. We even talk about that, the big Raptors win last night. But by the time this airs, it'll probably be like, I don't know, preseason, I don't even know what's going on there. Um, and after five years with the league, he went, on, he went the team business route and rose the ranks with the expansion Chicago Sky and later the Phoenix Suns. And then he went to the NHL, which I love, St. Louis Blues with their first Stanley Cup, working with the Devils and the Florida Panthers. However, a debilitating mental health crisis stopped Eric's career and life in his tracks for two and a half years. And after many failed treatments, he was lucky enough to learn practices that enabled him to dig out of his abyss and found a higher calling, launching a nonprofit at the end of 2017 called We Are All a Little Crazy, the Global Mental Health Alliance. And it's comprised of athletes like Theo Fleury and celebrities, along with media members, experts, advocates, and everyday heroes who've come together to make talking about mental health a common topic for, quote, five out of five of us. And they're Hashtag same here movement has swept across college campuses all across the country and has began to expand globally as well, which we're certainly going to dig into. And as mental health wellness continues to be at the forefront of every conversation, I knew it'd be critical and a great time to have Eric on the show today. And I'm thrilled and honored to have him. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, buddy. It's been, uh, like you said, 25 years, but uh, I think when you have a certain relationship with someone, and a certain respect for someone that continues no matter how long it's been. So it's, it's great to be here and great to be talking with you and your audience as well. Yeah, man, it, it's awesome. And I think your story is absolutely fascinating. So why don't we just jump in on, and if you wouldn't mind telling my audience, and, and usually we keep this short, but let's, let's go deep here. Why don't we start from the beginning? Because I want to give everyone the full picture of, you know, suburban you know, athletic dude does well in college, goes into the sports world, has an awesome job, and then shit starts to hit the fan. Why don't yeah. we start there and kind of bring everyone up to speed on your story? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think you explained it well. You know, I, suburban guy, I mean, both my parents were teachers. So Me so in, in our town, that wasn't necessarily the norm. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, got the education piece in place. And so... Uh, that was always uh, hammered into me as an important uh, part of what I needed to do to move forward. And so, you know, like you mentioned, I, I played sports in, college, in, in high school. We, we, we you know, go, going together, I played four sports in three seasons. And so to me, that was my life. 
and go on to Cornell University, walk on to the basketball team there, and uh, end up getting my dream job at the NBA. And you mentioned the other teams that I work for, so uh, no reason to rehatch that. But, you know, basically was spending this career doing what I love. So I went from, I think an important part of the story is I went from playing sports and, and my, my nose being to the ground and being so focused there to then working in the business side of sports, my nose being to the ground and thinking everything's, everything's wonderful, right? And, and I think you probably hear that a lot with people who go into whatever it is, the career that they want, and it could be accounting, it could be finance, it could be anything that, you know, when you find something that you're passionate about and you lose yourself in it, you don't feel like you're working a day, um, and you right. wake up, what could be wrong, right? So uh, about six months into my tenure with the, the Florida Panthers, I had taken on this role uh, that was called the chief revenue officer. And so the, the hierarchy in sports, you've got a CEO or a team president and then CRO is that next spot. So in the you know, uh, the steps that I was looking to take to eventually run a team, I was that one step away from what my dream job at the top, man, you were right there. Yeah. You know, and, and look, you know, when you're, when you're getting a chance to get promoted and go on to different opportunities and go to different markets, uh, you know, the wind feels like it's at your sails and you're moving in the right direction. So I think it's an important thing to know. And I don't say that, you know, to, Hey, let me build up my own resume. I'm saying that more to people who are listening, like, Things can be going well. Things can be going in the right direction. It could be feel like you're going down the right path. And then all of a sudden, I started to notice at work that I was, was lacking interest in things outside of work. So I'd be so focused on what I was doing at the office that I was losing interest in going to the gym when I got home, losing interest in seeing friends, losing interest in going on dates as a single guy living in Miami. Um, and I justified that by, by saying to myself, well, my job's really important now. I'm one step away from that right. dream role. You're career focused. You were, you were, exactly. your, your mind was in the career and we see that a lot. You know, I have buddies at the big consulting firms working their way up to partner and they block everything out and they, in relationships suffer, they, they stop focusing on things. So, so what happened there? Well, it, I, I'm glad you brought that point up and you stopped in the middle there because, you know, the vices that we talk about you know, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, work is one of those vices. And we're going to talk about why in a second, but yep. you know, I call it workaholism. Um, but it's, it's like, fun. what are we not working on um, outside of the day-to-day -day of our career because we're so focused on it? And by the way, I, you know, work with a lot of athletes. This is no different than the athlete who get, comes in and shoots hoops at six in the morning as the first one there, goes to the gym, comes back and starts Same shooting. Thing late at night right. and you think wow what a warrior but the true question is what are they not working on as well right that, that's still their job just because yeah. they play sports that's still their job it's the same thing as us you know bur burning the candle at both ends absolutely exactly exactly it's it's their career so so that was an excuse is the best way i could describe it that that this was the world's way of telling me i need to focus because about two weeks into that feeling i just started to fall apart as a human being <laughs> um, the best way I could describe it is if you had a robot that was programmed like in an artificial intelligence type of way to act like a human being and you're watching this robot walk down the street and then Adam comes from behind and clips the wires out of the back of that robot and you start to see it literally like eyes move to the back of its head and all abnormal functions with so its arms. So you were just legs. super, super locked into the day-to-day, -day, the career focus, the work, the stress that it involves. 
you know, dealing with the pressures every day that you were, you had blinders on, you had nothing else going on. You weren't concerned about family, friends, relationship, your physical yep. well-being, nothing. Yep. And, and I, and, and to be fair, I was the years prior, but it was, it was just during this period. And so it, it was, it was almost felt like this message like, Oh, okay. You need to spend more time. And, and sports is crazy in and of itself. You're there from seven in the morning until 12 at night. Right. On a game night, you're there the whole time. Yep. Exactly. So it's like, how much more time can you spend there? But yet still, I, in my mind, I was justified saying I need to focus even more. And so I woke up one morning and I had to push myself off the bed like I was in quicksand. I felt like there were cinder blocks on my feet. I'm looking in the closet. I can't even figure out whether or not I should wear a t-shirt or a button down whether or not my shirts are ironed or not. I just had no desire, no interest to like pick anything out. And I think for people hearing, that's a, a really important sign is when the day-to-day -day things that, you know, you take for granted or just part of your normal routine that you could do on autopilot, when they start to become difficult and you actually have to start to think about them, that's when you know there's real problems starting to arise. That's important. And, and we'll certainly talk a little bit more about that later. I want to talk about signs in the workplace, signs in life that, you know, you should look out for yourself and look out for others. So, so continuing down that path, you were. Yeah. So, so I go into the office after feeling that way that first day and it, it spiraled from there. I closed my door in the office. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Emails were coming in. I was feeling like almost visually this pressure of emails mounting and how am I going to get through all of them? Calls are coming in. I was telling people I'm on the other line on a conference call and I can't speak right now, which is so not like me. I enjoy interaction. I enjoy building teams. I enjoy camaraderie. My, my, my staffs would probably tell you over the years, I call too many meetings just because I like to have that interaction. And instead I was doing the opposite and I was avoiding people. Mm. And it got so bad that we had um, uh, invited prospects to games. So I had each of my reps invite two prospects to games in between the first and the second Sales. period. We would bring them into a suite and talk to them about joining the team, uh, becoming a season ticket holder, a corporate partner. And I used to give like an impassioned speech about what we're doing as an organization and what we're building. And that usually comes from the heart, right? Like you never want that to be scripted. Yeah. You want that to seem genuine. And, and it was in my case. I really believed in what the team was building. But I remember shaking before that group was coming in and I had to write down an index card Hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer of the Florida Panthers. It's nice to have you here. And then pass it off to my team president because I had nothing you, left to say. You, at that you point. couldn't even do that. There was a block there. Something that was routine that you've done a hundred times before. Yep. For some reason, something happened and you couldn't do it. And, and it was, I mean, that's just a microcosm of I was forgetting my niece's middle names. I had a guitar and I couldn't put together chords as I was playing. Like, But, but as, as these, let me ask you a question. Like, so as these things are happening, at each individual one of these things, what was going on inside here? Did you have the awareness to think that something was wrong right away? Or did yeah, it all kind of come? Mind, like, and, and even though it's 2019 now, this, this was happening to me in the beginning of 2015, and, and a lot's happened in a short period of time, is in my mind, I'm thinking, do I have a tumor? Um, am I just tired and, and you know, I need to rest up more? You burnt um, out on too much on my plate but I can't stop working hard so that can't be what goes away and that's why I was not going to the gym and not seeing friends is because my mind was like if I if I relax a little bit when I'm home and I actually sleep when I'm home right when I get home I'll feel better right so you know was it a tumor was it this thing called mental health which I didn't know from right and actually that was the conversation that happened right after that event in the suite 
was I went to my two owners who are military background, West Point grads, and, and I said, something's off here. I don't know whether it's this mental health thing. I don't know if it's a tumor. I don't know what's going on, but I'm not functioning. And it, for your own purposes and being a good employee, I'm not giving you my best. Uh, and they look me in the eye probably the way that, you know, most uh, military uh, uh, folks do. And they said, you know, we never leave a soldier out in the battlefield was their line. So take one month, two months, three months, whatever it takes to come back and hit the ground running. Uh, uh, let's do that. That's awesome. And, and I wish more, more workplaces picked that up. So, so they gave you the full reins to pause and go take care of yourself. That's family, exactly. man. That's loyalty. Yeah, and, and, and so that was, you know, comforting and 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 interesting took some stress off too a little bit i'm sure it totally did because you were probably and, nervous going to approach him and talk about this is your job you're at the top of the lit top of the top of the ladder what's going to happen am i scared are they going to are they going to say sorry we can't use you you know we can't use you anymore and like throw you out on the streets i'm sure i'm sure that went through your head oh, oh for sure well look at like you know i know this mm. episode will air after but look at what just happened with clay thompson and key d right like yeah. you work your whole career to get somewhere and then you get there and this injury, whether it's a physical injury or in my case, a mental health injury happens. And then you're thinking, is my career over? Am I not going to be able to do anything from this point? After you've spent all that time. And, and again, another point of like myopically focusing on your work, like, okay, that's a little dangerous because that's become your identity and that's all you're known for. So yeah, what else are you going to have? If you don't have that, then what? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Where do you go from there? So, you know, I'm thinking one month, two months, three months, that's, plenty of time because what I knew from mental health at that time, because we, you know, we, we went to the same high school. They don't teach you mental health. They teach you three things in health class, which are all wrong. They teach you that depression means sadness, which it's not. They teach you that anxiety means being nervous, which is not. And they teach you that PTSD is for soldiers, which it's not. Right. So, so, so coming into feeling what I'm feeling, I have no idea what it is. Um, and so I only know about mental health from what I see on commercials, which is, all right, you take this pill and this gray cloud after 15 seconds becomes a blue sky in this, you know, cartoon commercial that you see. And, and so what am I to think other than I'll try one pill and if that works great, I'll go right back. If that doesn't work, I'll try another one. And if that doesn't work, I'll try a third one. But what are the chances that I fail three pills Never going to happen. I'll be back in three months. They told me three months. That, that gives me comfort, like you said. So um, I, I come back to, to New York, to Long Island, where my parents are. And uh, I go to these doctors that are called psychopharmacologists. They, they mix medications. Because right away, like the recommendation from the people that I had spoken to was, hey, the dysfunction that you're having, like you need something heavy. They use, they use the term like heavy artillery. Jeez. Um, and, and so I got given these concoctions of uh, psychotropic drug uh, medications, SSRIs with benzodiazepines, with tricyclics, you know, later with antipsychotics. Did they go heavy right away? Like right out of the gate, they hit you with the big stuff? Yeah. Or I mean, you kind of ease so into it or? I'll, I'll tell you, like, it was interesting. I took this, this paper test at University of Miami. I don't even know if I should say the hospital, but I will. Um, medical center and I you know you circle like how are you feeling on a scale of one to five in each of these things and I just remember this doctor sitting with me and throwing the the answers down after he had added them up and exactly that terminology is like what you need is heavy artillery he's like 
you're dealing with a severe case of anxiety and depression, which... So he diagnosed you just based on self, your own self-diagnosis? Well, he, he diagnosed me based on reading this survey that he had, um, whether he had designed it or whether the, the hospital designed it or whether he had got it from somewhere else. That's what that's where my diagnosis came from, at least initially, right? And so obviously I'm gonna go into New York at that point and see other doctors and get other opinions. And here's the interesting thing about seeing doctors. So every doctor I went to, the same question was the first question was the same question was, what are your symptoms? No one asked me what was my life like, what led into this. Everyone asked no, me. No, no one asked about the context. No one asked about your day to day. What do you do for a living? Are you in a relationship? Do you have nope. kids? Nope. Have you had a traumatic experience in the past? Were you, you know, beaten, drug use, split family, like all those things that really tell the story of someone's psyche and background? Nothing. Right. And now keep in mind, I'm seeing psychopharmacologists who get paid, you know, every 15 minutes, you're paying a ridiculous amount yep. of money for you to come in there and then to give you some magic pill combination. And so what you're describing in terms of the, the psychology world and seeing okay, a psychologist enough. is more talk therapy, which I have been to as well. But but the the medical world at this point, in terms of seeing my symptoms that their feeling was, oh, I'm beyond just talking alone. Like I need something heavy to, to pop me out of this. And, and look, we grow up in a society where you have strep throat, you have bronchitis as a kid and your parents take you to a general practitioner and you get this magic pill called an antibiotic. So of course, wouldn't our minds automatically go to when I don't feel well, I need a medication, right? Like it's that's just the mindset the we're in. Yeah, it's a word. Exactly. And, and then and then the commercials on top of it. So so for for two and a half years, I'm laying in a bed, staring at a ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, being told to eat because I had no desire to eat. The the, the message just wasn't coming to me. And you know, I'm waking up with what I describe as like zero thought process whatsoever. So imagine like when we wake up now. You know, we take for granted that I want to put on my shoes or I want to brush my teeth, obviously not in that order. You know, I want to shower. I want to do this at work. Well, sometimes when your brain goes in shutdown mode like that, when it's an overload, you literally wake up and you're just staring and you don't know what to do with yourself. And that's the mode I was stuck in for two and a half years. You know, they talk about fight, flight, freeze mode. I was likely in freeze mode, which we'll get to in a second, probably why I was in that case. Um, but for, for that two and a half year period, I tried over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations. Jeez. And what did that do, what did that do to your body? Well, I, I wish I knew. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure time You'll will come down the road, Oof. but in terms of side effects, certainly, you know, some increase the anxiety. So like, I'll give you a, a, a tiny little tidbit from it. So when you do, when you describe cognitive dysfunction to a doctor that you're not thinking straight immediately, they think ADD and ADHD and they want to give you an upper. So some of these doctors were prescribing on top of the, the antidepressants, they were, they were prescribing Ritalin and Provigil and Nuvigil and Adderall. And so it would just skyrocket my anxiety even worse, which was already on, on overdrive. And I would call and say, like, it feels like the world is ending. And they would say, okay, take more Xanax. It's so like it's, like, it's, like a, it's one yeah. to compensate the other. Exactly. Jeez. Um, now, looking back on it, I, I, I realize the errors of the ways now. But back then, you know, you're, you're just following the path of someone that you believe is an expert. You're going right, to you're gonna, you're gonna listen to them. You're going to blindly exactly. listen to them. But you I'm sure you're smart. Like, feel so you, lost. 
else. Now let me ask you a question. Like you're, you're, you're a smart dude. Like were you, were you researching on your own at this point or, or did your mental illness kind of even take you away from that thought process you would normally have to be like, all right, let me do my due diligence. Let me do a little bit of research on what these drugs are, why I'm taking them. Yeah. I mean, I did do research um, the, with a little bit of cognitive abilities that I had. And yeah, also, look. you know, my best friend, Stacy, who I'd met down in Florida, who had been through something similar, though not as extensive, she was in my ear the whole time being like, you're just making yourself worse by researching this. Stop no. researching it and stop making yourself crazy. You know, no, no you need <laughs> to know what you're... that word by, by looking up more and more. And so, you know, I, I just kept trying to find what was wrong with me. Now here's the interesting thing and, and why ultimately we'll get to why I decided to, to form an organization is there's no central place to go and look. If you look at some of the largest nonprofits in the world and you look at their resource recommendations, they're like, here are the top places to get medications. Here's the top places to go to top places to go to get talk therapy. But when we talk about other treatment modalities, which we'll, which we'll get to also, that there's little one-liners like, you know, it has been shown that alternative treatment modalities may also be helpful. But that's all you see. So yeah, they don't they don't tell you what they are. Yeah, they don't tell you what they are, and and the the emphasis is on the drugs. And I don't know if that is because there's a backing from big pharma. Uh, I'll, I'll, right. You could look that up on your own if you're listening to this and see who let takes me, what from who, but. Let me, let me ask you a question. So at, at this point right now, when, 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 when you're breaking down, you're, you're heading downhill, you're almost at the bottom there. What was that relationship with your, your parents and your family? Were you, were you open with them? Were you talking with them about it? What was their guidance? Yeah, none of this ever was about like that whole concept of stigma and everything. Like that was never the issue with me. The issue with me was literally the ability to communicate. Like I would, at the beginning when I was still trying to hold on to my job thinking, okay, it's only going to be three months. I would get a call from my CEO who was my friend and my boss at the same time. And I was as nervous to talk to him as I would have been to talk to someone about putting a, a takeout order in through a restaurant. Like the words just weren't coming to mind. And you know, you hear the term agoraphobia, not being able to leave your house. So imagine that like fear of doing anything, literally clouding any ability to do anything from a conversation to an email to leaving your house. It's that same feeling. You just feel like your, your faculties have completely escaped you. And so, um, you know, I continued down this path of, of trying these different medications. And finally a doctor says to me, you know, you've got to go a more extreme route. Now we're going to try uh, TMS therapy, which stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, where they put this, uh, half moon shaped object above your head, like a helmet. And they shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain, and so I do that, and I'm supposed to do up to 30 treatments every single day. Like you're not like you could skip a day, but the recommendation was to do them every single day. Forget the money piece of it, where it's $350 a session and, and it's not covered by insurance. Which you know, it, there goes my savings. Fine, but. Um, on top of that, like I'm doing a treatment that I never thought I'd do. That was the less invasive treatment that we'll get to in a second on what the next recommendation was. So 23 sessions in, and then all of a sudden I get home and I'm looking at these pill bottles that are on my counter because I never wanted to leave my room. So all my pills are there. And I have this record playing over and over in my mind saying, swallow that bottle of pills, swallow that bottle of pills. Oh, geez. And so for everyone who, and I talk openly about suicidal ideations because we're, a very important figure for people to know we are at a 30 year high in suicides 
we lose a million people globally to suicide, okay? Like, this is an epidemic. This is not something that, like, is just going to pass, yet we're not giving it the attention that it needs. And everyone thinks of suicide who hasn't felt suicidal ideations before, and they think, what could have been so bad in that person's life? It's not a matter of, like, I broke up with my girlfriend or my goldfish died, so I'm sad, and now I want to kill myself. That's why you see so many people that die without leaving a note, right? That's why you see so many people that die and you hear the term never would have thought or that's the last person I would have expected. It's because when stress and trauma build up in the system so much, we start to get error messages. And that was my error message. And I, and I'll, I know I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. No, here. it's okay. Please. It's important. This is critical. This is important. Like who hasn't, like I, I've done this in every room I've spoken in. Who hasn't had a thought when they've been on the edge of a building looking over the edge? Hmm, what's it like over the edge of that building? Who hasn't had a thought when they're driving in the left lane and another car is driving the opposite way in the left lane? What would happen if both of our cars turned a little bit to the left and into each other? Who hasn't had a thought going over a bridge thinking, what happened if my car yeah. lost control and I went over the bridge? I think, I think or, it's safe to say that we've all at some point have had that like, kind of thought in our head. It's right. human. It's a it's human, human thought. And, and, and I, I look, this is, this but to is what theory, extent? But the reason I believe it's human is because we're curious beings. And I so, think we're, I think technically we're the only species that could commit suicide. I may not be right on yeah, that one. You know what? You, you taught me something if that's the case. I mean, I, I, I never look at it from like a research perspective. I look at it more like here's my lived experience and I share people what I've been through. But, you know, to your point about who hasn't had that thought, you know, let's, let's give a more benign example mm -hmm. of it. Who passes by a door and doesn't think what's behind that door, whether they open it or not, right? So, so because of that, we're curious beings. So we see these things happen. We watch them on TV. We hear about suicides. And my thought is that when stress and trauma build up in our system, just like thoughts going down a train track almost in a way, our thoughts now change to a different track. So whereas we might have thought about that, you know, looking over the side of a building or turning our car to the left for one nineteenth of one second and then it goes away and we don't focus on it anymore but instead we're able to hyper focus on our work and adam's going to hyper focus on doing his podcast and getting it right well now those thoughts that were just passing thoughts before now become hyper vigilant thoughts that we're thinking about over and over again and i i believe that's what was happening to me so i'm looking at these pills and i almost have two brains going on at one time Brain one, which is like this impulse brain telling me swallow, 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 take that bottle of pills. And the other part of my brain that's saying, what are you talking about? You don't want to die. Like you've been fighting. Right, like this like your rational self, right? It was, yeah. it was, it was by, it was, I'm not using bipolar, but it was, it was, it was split, almost split thing. Well, it was, it, I, I certainly don't have bipolar just because I've been to like enough. You know, that's not, that's and I, know not that, I would right. say it's more like you have this rational thinking part of your brain and we all do. Probably the best example I can give you is if you're up there giving a presentation or you're even doing your podcast and the back of your mind is critiquing yourself as you're speaking and you're like, oh, I wish I delivered that better. That didn't come out. That didn't sound the way that I wanted to. It was that part of my brain. So I was able to like have that part of my brain observe what I was doing and the impulse was there to want to swallow the pills. But like that, that's safety net. Say that again. Yeah, you had that safety net, but the other people, other people don't, and that's well, what leads but, and to here's the tragedy. Interesting thing about the safety net that I had, because I, I actually just coming from Vancouver, I spent time in a, in a in a group of homeless people in a park talking with them, and and to that point, yes, I had the safety net of my parents, so I went straight to my parents when I started having those feelings, and I said, 
I need to be checked into a psych ward right now. Like that is a scary term to say, Jeez. right? Because when we think of psych ward, we think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah. and stuff like Head, that. Headed rooms, you know, straight jacket. Exactly. And, and, and by the way, not so far off in terms of how they treat you there, which <laughs> is another side note. But um, so, so I get checked into Cornell Med in, in New York City and they decide that they're going to send me to their Westchester treatment facility. And I'm skipping a lot of details right now. But other than to say, let's just say when your mental health is in decline, the last thing that you need is to be in a place that's cold and yeah. the beds are hard and small and you're treated you, like a prisoner there. You need comfort. You, you need, you need exactly. comfort. You need what you know. You need soft. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so I go in there and the, the attending psychiatrist looks at my uh, history and says, listen, you've tried everything. She literally uses the term everything. And your last resort, this is what scared the shit out of me, your last resort is to do shock therapy. So something that, you know, you talk about research, when I was going through this and I was looking at the possible treatment options, the last thing I thought I would ever do was allow electrodes to be put on my brain, to be put under anesthesia and to get shocked into having a seizure to try and restart my brain. Um, but hey, when you're at that point and you literally can't stop thoughts from happening, you, you, you surrender and you give, you know, all decision-making power to the professionals that are in the room. And so I end up go, getting 12 sessions of ECT shock therapy. ECT stands wow. for electroconvulsive therapy. And each one of those have to put you under? They put you under. Um, and here's the scary part. So I'm in a psych ward unit with 30 people on my floor. I'm the only one on the floor getting shock therapy. So I feel like I'm the most effed up of the effed up people. Jeez. <laughs> and they, you're not allowed to eat the night before. They wheel you in a wheelchair to a completely different part of the hospital. You go into this ECT suite that's the size of a tiny little room. And you go into the room, and the room is like the size of almost like a dentist's uh, office. Right. So, so that, I mean, even in preparation for that, they're, 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 they're getting you into it's this crazy yeah. mindset. They're, right? not, they're not helping you with, oh, not helping you. what you like and you're going to be great. And, you know, I'm, I'm even asking questions of the psychiatrist who is performing the ECT and getting very, I asked him, what is the science behind this? And the way that they discovered ECT was they were trying to figure out a way to reverse seizures that were happening with patients who were epileptic. And that right, didn't right. work. But some of the epileptic patients who happened to have depression came back telling them that they were actually feeling better and feeling less depressed. So there's still, I mean, look, obviously we're talking 2019 right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know what has happened in terms of research since I had that conversation. And my guess would be not much just because of how it didn't work for me. Granted, I'm only one case, but um, the, 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 the strong science behind it wasn't there. It's not like they can look under. You know, it seems like it's kind of, you know, antiquated science going back to the, you know, the, the turn of the century, the, right? Like yeah, early 1900s. It seems grasping like, at straws and that's why this doctor. Let's just reset. It's almost, yeah, it's like pulling the plug on the VCR. You know, the, exactly. the Wi-Fi router is not working. What do you do? You unplug it, right? The VCR is not working. Whatever yep. that, that was a fix, and that was a right, rationale behind it. Nintendo games back in the day. Right, you blow on the disc, yeah. exactly. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Using the Q-tips and the... So, and the, how many, you said 12? So, I did 12 sessions over mm -hmm. six weeks, so it was about two weeks. 
Jeez. And I leave the hospital feeling no better than I had for the previous two and a half years. But did you ask the doctor, what am I supposed to feel? What, what does success look like? That of question. Course, of course. I mean, you know, answer that. granted, it would have been better had I had a peer on the floor who was going through it and I could compare my results to them. But, you know, about the third or fourth session is when I started to really get upset because I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, by the way, I would wake up and, and I'm sure you've been woken up in the, in the middle of REM sleep by like your, your, you know, your family members or your kids or whatever. And yeah, all the time, like, where am I for a second? It's well, imagine mind. having that feeling for a good 30 minutes after you wake up, like you don't know who the president is. You don't know what year it is. So it's scary. I, That's scary. Oh, it, it was awful. Like they how'd had that, a your heart feel? How did, did you feel it? Like, you know, so you had the, you had the, the mental, but what about the physical? Like what did, like the body tension? Like, did you feel it in your heart and your chest breathing? Yeah, but you know what? Like, I'll tell this to people who have not gone through major mental health complications. And, and, and when you hear what my brother's been through, you'll see that I'm not playing favorites in terms of, you know, mental versus physical. But when you're going through major mental health stress and trauma, like your body is, is second to you. Like you, the, the, when this up here is not working and, and is not feeling right, like no matter what pain you're feeling in your body, it's a, it's a far, far second to what you're feeling in your head because the world just doesn't seem right to you. Uh, and so if you have a stub toe or your heart is beating fast, it doesn't even register. It's, it's low down on the totem pole relative to the other things that you're going through. So I hear you, man. Yeah. So you come out of the hospital, you just had 12 of these. Yep. Did they say and you're fine? I, go home. Like, like, yeah, they were like, listen, we've done what we can. Um, it's such a weird, it's it's like a movie. You, you're giving your laces back in your shoes because that's something that they're full yep. of when you're in the hospital. And, and you get taken home. And so I'm laying back in bed in that same bed I was in, by the way, the bed that I grew up in as a young kid, like in the same town. Right, so now um, you're in your, your, your twin bed with your Superman sheets. Yep, exactly. And um, I, I'm, I'm looking up at the ceiling thinking, unless... Pfizer or, you know, one of these other big pharma companies invents the magic super pill that happens to work for me, I'm never getting better because I didn't know from other treatments. And then all during this time, you're sitting there, you're back in your home. I can't imagine those thoughts like, like a time warp. Yeah. Like what yeah. I do, I was at the top, I'm in Miami, I great job, great apartment, great life and everything. And all of a sudden, I'm back at home in my parents' house in my bed I grew up in. The, you, you, you don't even have the luxury of having that type of thought because- wow that's initially the case, but then back to like what happens when your brain gets mm -hmm. to a certain spot, you just want to feel some sense of normalcy. Like you're not even concerned about your job at that point. And that's why when I mentioned like stigma and stuff like that, for me, that was never the issue. Like I'll, I'll tell whoever the hell will listen to me if they'll help me get better. That was my mentality. Um, and friends were there to support me and, and, and no one really understood what I was going through because no one had gone through it at that level. Um, but you know, at least I had people who were in my, my corner and said, you know, we're going to be with you as long as this takes for you to get better. Um, so, so that, that hopefully answers your question about what my parents were there for. Um, so, so I, you know, luck would have it. My mother takes this course on breathing with her friends, you know, they're all retired teachers and they go to these like continuing education yep. courses and stuff like that. So when my mom had this pain in her neck and her back and she does these breathing practices for an hour with this woman. And her neck and her back starts to feel better. So she goes up to the woman afterwards. And, and again, keep in mind, the only diagnoses that I had been given at this point are like generalized anxiety disorder or 
anhedonic depression or melancholic depression. So, so all she knows from is depression and anxiety. So she goes up to this woman and she says, do you, you know, this breathing practice worked for me with the pain that I had. Do you actually help people who've been through anxiety and depression um, feel better through this breathing practice? And the woman said, absolutely. Like I'm a yoga practitioner and a psychologist, and I believe there's a mind body connection. And I'd love to work with your son and help him any way that I can. Mm -hmm. So I go to her house begrudgingly a little bit, but also like, well, what else do I have to lose? Yeah. And she's the first practitioner, you know, maybe because she, she doesn't prescribe meds, but to be, but, but right. Eastern comforting because she asked me to tell her what's gone on in my life. Right. And not in a way like, Hey, let's talk about, you know, your relationship with your father and let's dive deep into no, that. She was trying to figure out your trauma. What exactly. the breaking point? Exactly. But, but, but keep Reverse mind, engineer like, it. No, no one had approached it that way before. So I'm not thinking that way. So I start telling her about, I have an older brother and I have a younger brother. And then, okay, tell me about your older brother. And I literally list off this list. Um, you know, the same way I'm going to tell you right now, this is the exact way I described it to her. I said, well, my old, from the time I was nine years old, my older brother broke his femur bone in an accident, was in a body cast for a year in homeschool. Healed from that, diagnosed with leukemia, had leukemia for five years, uh, went into remission, was in a Jeep with his friend. His friend was driving erratically. There was no seatbelt in the back of the Jeep, flew out on the Meadowbrook Parkway, landed on his head, cracked his head open, lost partial vision in his eye. Heals from that, gets diagnosed with a relapse of leukemia. Uh, goes stronger chemo, uh, chemo regimen because they really needed to knock the shit out of the cancer to get it out of his body. Um, his body goes into septic shock from the stronger chemo treatment. So he's in the hospital. He goes into a coma. He's in a coma for three months, and we don't know if he's going to wake or if he's going to have any brain activity. He finally wakes, and he does have brain activity, but they realize that he's kind of talking erratically because there's pressure on his brain. So they have to put a shunt in his brain permanently to drain out fluid. And then finally, his kidneys fail from the rigor of all the septic shock. And my dad, who's the closest match, has to donate a kidney to him. Wow. So I'm telling her the story in exactly like that. And her jaws to the ground. And, her, and you know, she, she kind of puts her hand next to me. And she's like, Eric, you have PTSD. And I said, Donna, why are you the first person telling me I have PTSD, number one? I go, two, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we were taught in school PTSD is for servicemen and women. So I never was in the service. So how do I have PTSD? And she kind of, you know, grinned a little bit. She's like, is there anything else you want to tell me about your experiences that may have affected you before I tell you a little bit more about what's involved in PTSD? And, you know, you remember Billy Garfield from high school. Uh, Billy was, was a year older than yeah. I was. And so in the same year, I lost Billy, who, who was my best friend growing up, uh, my roommate from college, and then a kid that I volunteered with at the hospital for special surgery, all died of heart conditions. And so, you know, so again, she kind of jumps back at me and she's like, Eric, she's like, this is very similar to what I hear from people who had friends who jumped from the building in 9-11, women who've been in a sex slave trade, people who've lived through natural disasters. Like, yes, your trauma happened over the course of many years, but I'm surprised you didn't fall apart until you were in your mid thirties anyway. Like this should have happened way sooner. Right. You just figured out coping mechanisms. To right. Coping mechanisms, your internal strength. Exactly. So I immediately, this was kind of the first epiphany that I had in terms of going down this path of starting an organization is I shot right back there and I said, wait a second, you're telling me that things that happened to other people affected me. And she said, no, I'm telling you that things that happened to you affected you because 
you had a front row seat for these people. Did you not care about these people and love them? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, then they affected you. And, and then you I were a bystander. Back. You were an active participant. Exactly. And, and, but, but, but my immediate reaction was to think, who in this world doesn't have, going back to the thoughts, right? Now let's talk about experiences. Who doesn't deal with the premature loss of loved ones? Who doesn't deal with the sickness of loved ones? Who doesn't deal with breakups and job losses and, and divorces and you know, potential bullying when you're younger and verbal abuse and sexual abuse, right? So the list goes on and on and on of the things that we deal with as humans. So I just shot back and I said, I don't care if you call it a lot of fucked up things instead of PTSD, who doesn't have a lot of fucked up things, right? And so um, she kind of smiled in a sage type of way. And she's, she's like, well, that's the way that we think about mental health. It's, you know, more about these experiences that we have than it is just these disorders or these diagnoses. So um, you're looking at it the same way I do. But unfortunately, our society doesn't look at it that way. And that was like, that was very deep to me, because I knew at that point, okay, if I had known differently, and if, and if it had been explained to me differently and society had looked at it differently, of course I would have been getting help from this from the time my brother first got into an accident with his femur bone, like going right. all the way back to nine years old. But we didn't know any better, like, right? Like Eric is a smiley kid playing basketball and hockey and baseball. And he's football. happy. Look at him. He's happy. happy. Right? And Eric's working in sports. His job is great, right? But he's happy. So um, she sends me to this course. She says I have to have blind faith in her. It's called the Art of Living, the Happiness Course, and I go, and I'm the only male, I'm the only one under forty at the time, I'm the only one born in this country. So it's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats, right. and I had to learn how to like do this breathing practice mm -hmm. for three days straight. And you know, it, it, the first three days, like I'm asking all these questions: What does this do scientifically? Where's the proof that it works? Like I'm very skeptical in it, but to be fair, the the practitioners were were great about it telling me about how your vagus nerve gets stimulated and your vagus nerve is the nerve that's in your neck that sends signals to the rest of your body of whether or not you are in danger or whether or not things are okay. And you need to reprogram and rewire your system to say like the, the next shoe is not going to drop because that's what's happened to you your entire life is you're waiting for the next shoe to drop. And so I did the, the breathing practice for three days, didn't feel much better, but they put us on a text message thread and they said, look, we're going to have you all stay with us and, and be accountability partners for the next 40 days and text into each other that you're doing the practice at home. At least give it 40 days to start to feel better. Now, keep in mind, most of the people who are in this course are going to this course because they want to go from seeing life and standard definition back to high definition. And I'm right. going from wanting to have like no view on my screen to getting static. Back, yeah. You know? Different perspective. Yeah. Like relatively speaking, it was a different experience, but I, I still wanted to trust in the process. And so I'm doing this practice and literally like 30 days into it, I start waking up and not emotionally, but at least cognitively, I start to get my thoughts back and I'm like, holy shit. Like I can actually think again. I can, I can actually like care about what's going on around me. I can actually put sentences together. I can actually watch a TV show the whole thing through and follow the plot. Um, and so I had some friends who worked in Manhattan at an ad agency and they, they were like, come in, you'll do some mental gymnastics with us, like working on some projects that'll help get the cobwebs worked out. And so I go in and like two days into working there, I just got this itch to, to share my story. And I know you do this a lot on LinkedIn. I didn't have, uh, 
Instagram. I didn't have Twitter. I wasn't a social media person. And what I was, if anything, on social media, I had Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, I was one, the voyeur, right? Like I wasn't the person who posted yeah, much. So I didn't really know much about posting. So I go to I go to you know Word because that's the only the default. I have, and I type my story out, and I, and in, believe it or not, in a lot more detail than I just told it to you because I wanted to help people. Like this was a struggle between do I just give like the bullet points of what PTSD are, or do I go into deep detail about what it was like every day to live through this? And I'm like, I have to put it all out there if I'm going to put it all out there. That's the only thing that's going to help people. Absolutely, uh, full transparency, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, I write it up and they put it on that website medium, which I didn't mm-hmm. know existed. Mm-hmm. And the first pass at it, it says it's going to be 36 minutes to read it. <laughs> and they come back to me and they're like, we haven't even read it yet. We love you, but no one's going to read something that's 36 minutes long. They're like in today's world with social media, like you got to capture people in, in a minute, maybe two. And usually it's like, you know, a video content or else, you know, people just are going to pass by it no matter how compelling the story is. Now I had put my telephone number on there and my email address thinking, okay, my thought was I have 2000 followers or, or friends, if you will, on, on LinkedIn. Let's say the algorithm, it gets fed to 200 or 250 people, 20 people read it, 10 people react to it. Five people get back to me. If I'm able to help five people, that's a great start, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not using the cliche of just helping one person, right? Like, so I'd be a little more ambitious if I could help five people. So um, I put it up there and my friend calls me the next day and he's like, dude, your story's going viral. Now, I didn't know what viral meant. I thought viral was like the viruses that you put into computers. So I thought what he meant was when people downloaded my story, they were, they were getting viruses into their computers. So I thought it was a bad thing. So I'm, I'm like, I'm like, do I take this down? What do I do? He's like, no, keep it up. It means people are reading it. So the, the long story short on that, on that story is it gets read 110,000 times in that first week. Wow. But I get over 400 calls from as far as China. Wow. And here's where like epiphany number two comes is I'm calling back all these people. I have an Excel spreadsheet to get back to all these people. And I'm in the office doing it at this time. We have an open office. So everyone's hearing me. And there wasn't a single mention. I know that sounds hyperbolic, like, oh, you know, you really paint with a broad brush here. Not a single person mentioned a disorder name. So there was, I didn't get any calls being like, Eric, I have bipolar depression or Eric, I have. No, no one was trying to diagnose you here. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, but people were sharing with me what they'd been through in their life. Like they were treating me like I was a freaking therapist, right? Even though I'm not, maybe because I'm decent at listening. They were like. You, well, you, opened up. You, were be, you, were being, you were being vulnerable. You were sharing. And so many people don't do that. You're, you're the minority. Right. So, and, th- and that, that term that I didn't know, that safe space that was created, a lot of these people had never been to a therapist in their life, right? But they read what I had been through with my brother or with my friends passing away. And so I heard things like, Eric, I had a child that, that I lost to SIDS five years ago, and I've never been the same since. Or even things like, Eric, I had my dream job at 22 years old right out of school, and I took a chance with a startup and left that job. And even though I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm getting compensated well, I've never been the same as when I was when I first took that job and I was so excited to get started. Or Eric, I've remarried and things were not great with my first wife or husband, but now I'm in a happy marriage, but it's not as happy as it was before, right? So people are like getting deep in terms of what they're dealing with. And then the end of the conversation is always, and I'm having these feelings that sound similar to 
maybe not the same extent, but some of the symptoms of what you're going through. And, and it was at that point that I realized the common thread that ties us together as a human race is not disorder, it's challenge. We all face challenge, right? We all have different challenges that we go through different times in our life. And, and said another way, those challenges are stressful experiences and traumatic experiences. Um, so, so this idea of stress and trauma in my mind started to, to really take shape. And I started doing some research and looking at the largest nonprofits in the world and seeing, okay, what are their marketing campaigns? Why did I not realize that I needed to get help? Right. And, and so the, here were the three things that I found. They each started with the stat one in five people have mental illness, right? Well, okay. How many people are raising their hand being like, I'm mentally ill. They're not, they're walking through life, just dealing with shit that happens to them. Right. And they don't believe they're in that category. They don't want to believe they're in that category. They don't like those terms. And so they're turning a blind eye to it. So we're basically telling four and five people, Hey, you're normal. <laughs> you're, there's nothing wrong with you. Everything's fine. This whole mental health thing is mental illness. You don't need to be concerned about your mental health. So that was issue number one. Why, at least looking back, I, I had never thought of it. Then issue number two was all the campaigns with the stats were stop the stigma, stomp the stigma, erase the stigma. Well, one, you're, you're reminding people that there is a stigma, the more you, you use that term. But I think more importantly is coming off of the heels of the one in five versus the four in five, when you're using stigma over and over and over again, you're basically telling the masses of people that there's a group of one in five people that are being painted into a corner looked at in an ugly way and you all in the four and five category that are beautiful normal people you're the ones who are doing it too they're going about it the wrong way yep. it, it, the, you're putting two groups of people against each other how are you ever going to come together on that right the way that we you know talk about my brother with cancer the way that we got cancer to be the most donated to cause in the world was by saying that everyone knows someone affected right it was bringing people together campaigns about stigma don't bring people together right when you tell other people stop the stigma you're basically pointing a finger at people and you're saying, you stop talking negatively about those people. And even though that might be what we'd like to happen, people don't like to be told in that type of way what to do. People want to feel like they're a part of something. So, so that, was, that was number two. And then the third one was that the uh, celebrities that were sharing their stories, oftentimes through these nonprofits, you know, being an endorser, the media was telling their stories and they were telling the far end of the spectrum erratic behavior, or in the case of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, catastrophic part of the story. So I'll give you examples. Britney Spears has depression, so she shaves her head. Kevin Love has anxiety, so he runs off the basketball court, right? Um, Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, so she's a hot mess and can't, can't do her hair right and looks crazy when she comes Maybe out. Maybe it's just America thing with Lindsay Lohan, man. Maybe it's just America <laughs> thing. You're just a little crazy in this town. <laughs> it's true. Well, Amy Fisher too back in the day. Oh, yeah, well, I forgot about her. <laughs> um, but but that's that is so so now you're taking that one and five. You're separating. Hold on, we got disconnected there. Hold on. On the the far end of the spectrum, erratic behavior, it, it, and, and so. What are people to think other than, well, if I'm not running off basketball courts, if I'm not shaving my head, if I'm not having to leave in the middle of a test and I'm able to grunt through it, then I'm not this mentally ill thing. I don't need to worry about that topic, right? So that's where the impetus for this idea of thinking of mental health across a continuum. I, if stress and trauma can build, and the best analogy I can give you and, and kind of the listeners is if you ate 
a cheeseburger and french fries every single meal every day for the next five years, you would start to develop you know, diabetes, you start to develop a plaque in your arteries, and it wouldn't be good for your physical health, right? So, but the thing is, we know that stuff, like it's, it's been accepted science, and we also see the effects on our body because we're putting weight on. So what do we do? We, we try to do the opposite. We eat salad every day, and we go to the gym, and we try to do things that are healthy for us. Well, the equivalent of eating a cheeseburger and fries every day is dealing with stressful and traumatic situations every day. You're eating the same shit every day, Mm -hmm. not doing anything about it. Yeah. So, so, so going back to that stat that we have a million people that we lose to suicide and that's just losing to suicide. That's not attempting. And that's not people who are miserable, who haven't attempted. Think about how many freaking people are affected in this world by this. So you look at that and you say, we are eating cheeseburgers and fries for our brain on an everyday basis, yet our society is doing nothing about it other than saying, well, if you get to the bad point at the end, you can take this medicine that will make you all better. And that's just not the case. And my example is the case of that. And by the way, in the case where medications work, this is at least what I believe. I'm not a medication basher. I'm, I myself am still on Lexapro. I think medication is a symptom management tool that can help when you're not feeling well and 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 you go to a general practitioner and and he or she prescribes Zoloft or Pro, or or you know Prozac or or Lexapro you might go from feeling 75% of yourself to feeling 85% of yourself but the question then becomes why are you not feeling 100% or what happens when stress and trauma continues to build and that 85 starts to dip back down to 80 and 75 and 70 again a, med- a medicine is not the answer. It's not this cure the way that it's marketed, the way that big pharma markets it. So, you know, the experience with learning about the breathing practices, the realization that everyone goes through something and, and the wanting to get the message out there that mental health lives across a continuum that we all need to be concerned about this. That's what ended up being the impetus for creating the idea of we're all a little crazy, right? And crazy has the A upside down. And it's approachable. Bringing everyone together instead of tearing us apart. Exactly. Because who can't say that they've said to their friend before, oh, you're acting crazy, man, or this sandwich is crazy good. And it's funny because we came out with this campaign, you know, the end of 2017. And I had some detractors, especially in the mental health world, who said, you can't use a triggering word to, you know, and and then Nike comes out with their campaign about crazy. (laughs) And, And I take no credit for Nike coming out with their campaign this far smarter um, marketers there than I, but, you know, they showed that you could repurpose a word the way that we use it. Right. A word that had a negative connotation into a positive. Exactly. And, and, and so to say, is it crazy to think that you could have kids like Serena Williams and come back and still dominate your sport? Right. So, so our, our crazy was, Hey, like let's create a cult movement around this where people can feel like we're all somewhere on this spectrum. We're all in it together. And then what built from that was bringing in the folks that I had relationships with in the sports world. You mentioned Theo Fleury, you know, so we have people from all four sports. We have people from the acting world, the comedy world, the, um, the music world, um, all kind of sharing what we call the campaign is the same here campaign. So same here is an American sign language sign. It's your thumb at your chest, your three middle fingers curled, right? Like you're making, and then the, and then the pinky pointed out the other person. And I'm saying with same here, not Adam, I have depression, you have depression, or Adam, I have anxiety, you have anxiety. It's Adam, I've been through some shit in my life. You've been through some shit in your life. If we haven't chosen those things to happen to us, why the hell aren't we talking about them, right? 
Um, so, so I think that softer approach is what enabled us to get more and more endorsers to come on board because now it became a, a, a campaign around telling your challenge, your story of challenge, as opposed to your story of disorder. And who doesn't have a story of challenge? That right, you're flipping, you're flipping the script. You're changing the dynamic of the conversation. Yep. So, um, yeah. So, so you know, was fortunate that like Darren Ravel reached out, which obviously, given his reach of two million followers on Twitter, a, a program that I didn't have was certainly helpful. Um, and, and and to his credit, he proactively reached out to get on board. And then this kind of groundswell of people just being interested started to, to, to build. And we started to build programs for four main categories. So we have same here schools for uh, K through 12. We have same here sit downs for colleges because the feedback that we got is you can't ever get college students to sit in one place at one time. Um, we have same here sports for we, we do programs with professional sports teams and their fans. And then same here um, safe for offices, safe because safe is the last thing people feel when they open up about their right. mental health, thinking that they're going to get let go or, you know, not be promoted or whatever it is. And then, you know, I'll, I'll share with you, I don't know if it'll come to fruition, but had a call yesterday with the NYPD in the mayor's office where we've got a same here service. That's why I was mentioning to you, I was in. That's awesome. Starting to do more and more with first responders and military. I mean, when you think about PTSD, I mean, they see it every single day. We were talking about that before we went on the air. The, the things that first responders see and they have to, you know, park somewhere inside of them and then come home to their families. And that adds up and that builds up. I don't care how strong you are. Well, and, and aren't for, it's kind of a mirror thing, right? Like here's the interesting thing about first responders. First responders are watching the trauma that other people are going through, right? Like a mother watches their child burned in a building and the first responder is going to save the child and then, you know, uh, comfort the mother or the father. And, you know, it's not their child in the fire, right? But if you're an empathetic person, if you're a human, of course, being, yeah. you don't have sociopathic tendencies, you're going to feel for that family, right? And so isn't that case in point to all of us who watch things happen with our family and friends? If it's happening to first responders and they're not even related to these people, of course, when we're watching it happen to our family and friends, it is affecting us. And that's something that everyone should take note of that just because I'm not at that far end of the spectrum where I have disorder yet, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be working on our mental health, right? So, so those have been the programs. And then one other thing I think is important to mention is this, this we, we created this acronym called STAR. So Stress and Trauma, Active Release and Rewiring. And it's on our website, weareallalittlecrazy.org. And it's everything from Qigong meditation to yin yoga to breathing practices to havening to practice called TRE. It's ways in which you can release and rewire the stress and trauma out of your system and not have to rely on this magic pill drug is gonna get me better. And I built it because I wish that was around when I was going through what I went through. So I had a place that I could come to and I could find practices that I can do on a daily basis to get better. That's incredible. Eric, I mean, the, the work that you're doing, the journey, I mean, is, have you found comfort? Or I mean, how does that mindset take you to think like when, when you came out of school that you always wanted to work in sports and now you're doing this, you know, how does that feel for you from, for, a, for a career journey perspective? I never thought after working in sports that I'd find something that was as rewarding. And now getting a chance to get up in front of 1,200, you know, student athletes at, um, you know, Boise State University or USC and tell my story 
but more importantly, have students come after me, up to me afterwards, or parents come up to afterwards, or office workers come up to me afterwards and say, that changed my life. That's more rewarding than anything I could ever do in sports. There, yeah. There's a piece of sports that I miss, which is the playoff run. But but aside from that, That's an like, adrenaline rush too. Yeah, and the adrenaline yeah. rush. But 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 I get an adrenaline rush from this. But you know, the chance to win a ring is certainly missing. But the day to day, what I get out of this is way more rewarding than anything I ever got in sports. Well, that's a fantastic story, Eric. Truly incredible story, and I hope that everyone you know spent the time to listen to this entire episode and resonate. And we'll share all of Eric's links below and how you could get involved. Eric, two questions as we wrap up the show today, and I ask every guest on the podcast first. What is your superpower? What do you do better than anybody else? What is ingrained in your soul? What in your DNA? I think I developed this, but I think everyone has the ability to, which is I, I learned to use perspective. So, so I think perspective is every human being's superpower because think about it. I'll use it physical health analogy. If I twisted my ankle and then I ran on it and I felt like shit and then it healed, think about how much better I would feel relative to what I was like running on it. So I could talk to you in this podcast and say, oh, I don't like the way I sounded. Hey, relative to how I was a year and a half ago when I was laying in a bed, perspective, right? Gives me this opportunity to say things are pretty good right now. Right. Ab absolutely. And Eric, la last question. And, and, and this to me is the most important question. When, when you were at your lowest, when you, when you thought all hope was lost, when you're like, shit, I, I cannot believe I'm sitting here in this institution in this small cold bed looking up at the ceiling and you know i'm about to get my eighth round of shock therapy what did you look to for your north star what pulled you up my north star was wanting to help other people that, like i know that sounds weird at that place but like i kind of felt like i had this thing inside me telling me if you could pull through this you can use this as a projectile to really help other people get out of whatever they're going through so wow. So it's a blessing in a way that you go through all that crap credibility to now talk about it in a different way with other people. Wow, that's incredible. Everyone, I mean, I, I please take the time, get involved. So closing thoughts here. Burnout is real. In today's always on hustle to win mentality, many of us are burning the candle at both ends. And it's not just affecting us physically, but mentally as well. It affects our work, our relationships, and ultimately ourselves for many years has been swept under the rug or something that people just keep inside due to fear or repercussion from losing their jobs or relationships but it's critical for everyone to be able to recognize the signs within themselves and of others they care about at home and in the workplace and eric i applaud you for your bravery your honesty and your vulnerability more importantly i applaud you for taking care of yourself and leveraging your superpowers to help others tremendously and mental health issues are real we all need to take ownership of our own mental health and look out for each other Eric, thank you for taking the first of many steps that led you to what you have built and ultimately what you give. Thank you, dude. And thank, thank you for coming you, on the show. Where, Thanks, where could bro. folks connect with you? I know you mentioned before, I will have the links, but tell everyone where they could find you, how they could get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So our main channel is Facebook and Instagram. So uh, at we are all a little crazy um, uh, for, on both. And then our website is we are all a little crazy .org. Uh, we, we recently launched a, a, a podcast. <laughs> um, so it's called the same here show. Um, awesome. and so those channels are, are probably the best way. Eric, that was incredible. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. And to everyone listening at home, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Please be sure to follow us on all the social media channels below. Click link, subscribe, comment. Remember 
Take your online, offline. Thank you for joining us. And catch us next week for another episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode, jam-packed with more incredible humans. For more info, please visit www.nhptalentgroup.com.